0: if you've got Bibles with you, take them and head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That is where we are going to be. And And I don't often think about sermon titles. Um, quite frankly, they get sermons get titled a long time in advance, and then I don't really think about it. And if Joyce wasn't putting them in the bulletin or the newsletter, I probably wouldn't even work for them because I don't particularly care for them and so I don't give them much thought and attention and a year and a half ago when 1 Corinthians got laid out, the sermon title head coverings seemed at that point to be appropriate and I, like I said, didn't think a lot about it after the fact until Monday morning and I was walking to the office from the house and I'm coming down 4th Street here. And uh, I get a couple houses away and I see our church marquee that hangs there on the building. And John Fitz had done what John Fitz does on Sunday afternoons and had updated the marquee with the appropriate scripture and the sermon title for the week. And it dawned on me, it's a terrible title. (laughs) Like I probably should have put a question mark on that. I was a little glad that it wasn't on... Potomac Street, because I think it would have communicated some things that I don't actually intend to communicate this morning. So you'll see that the question mark is on the slides this morning, because uh, it really is a question, um, and there are a lot of different things that I think we actually engage in in this area, um, just because of where we live, and so we're going we're gonna to chat about that a little bit as we go. Uh, here's one of the really unique parts about this text, and I just want to read to you what one commentator wrote about this passage, um, because it's at least worth keeping this in mind. He said this, "The complexity of First Corinthians 2, or 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 through 16, continues to trouble modern interpreters. That's us. And it's comments about women rile many modern readers. That's a good majority of you. It's a hard text. It really is. We could, we, we, we could take the approach where Paul says women have to wear head coverings. And so that's all there needs to be said about it. And there we go. Um, I think some have. I'm, I'm not sure that's... Quite exactly what Paul has in mind. We're going to try to navigate some of that and walk through that. Um, and, and so let's just think about this together. So I'd love some feedback from you. Uh, what comes into your minds when you hear the term head coverings? Allegra. Okay. All right. Completely covered. Only the hair or only the face Poking out. Okay, what else comes to mind? Yes, Nancy. The Amish or Mennonite? Sure, sure. Submission. Okay, Josh. My great-aunt. Your great aunts. Okay, all right. Just just out of curiosity, if you have a family member that has worn head coverings at one point in time, just raise your hands. Okay, okay. There's some personal experience, yeah. What else comes to mind? Protection, okay. How so? Okay. Okay. So not like a bike helmet, but okay. All right. Tracking with you. Gotcha. Okay. All right. All right. Anything else come to mind when when we? Yes. Okay. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Okay. Did you take the hat off when you got to church? Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> My. Did you take the gloves off when you got? So when Cinda came to church, the gloves came off. I right? just want so. All right. That's that's what has been said. Sure. Okay, all right. Let, let's play a little game. Um, we're gonna call this game "Name the Head Covering." Okay, all right, brethren. Okay, prayer. Is there is it like it's not a shawl, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna show my ignorance here. Just a prayer covering. Okay. Okay. It, Which would be, I think this one was a Google image that came up for like Mennonite head covering. And this one would have been Amish, German Baptist as well. Okay. Okay. I call this Baptist Church Sunday morning with really awesome choir. All right. What? In 1950. There, there's some pretty crazy hats you can find, and they, they usually have really awesome choirs. Um, <laughs> and quite frankly, some of the way these churches, their organists play, it is absolutely phenomenal music. Um, but it is entirely different in, in, in just all regards culturally. Um, really, really neat. I threw this one on there. Um, I don't it's a little dark I I think you can probably see it Uh, there's a ball cap yeah so this is my favorite band and if you went into my office you would see a poster of them hanging in my office it is a signed poster and you'd see like this little montage that I had created Um, I actually when we were in Indiana we brought these guys in to do a concert at our church And uh, so I had the opportunity to meet them, spend a good chunk of time with them. Um, When they lead, and they're they're local church leaders when they're not out on the road. Um, When they lead, that's what they wear. And it was actually joked not too long ago by these guys that when they were at the Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, Shane Bernard had to take off his hat. And it was, it was actually pretty revealing. He's very bald underneath there, which is, I think, why he wears the hat. But you've got a man wearing a hat on a platform, leading praise and worship music in a church. Does that feel uncomfortable to anybody? Yeah. I had thought about having at least a hat with me this morning decided not to. Mikey's got one, but he's not wearing it. And so there would probably not be the same level of discomfort. What'd you say? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I I find myself a little uncomfortable with it. And it's just part of, I think, that drilling. I don't know if the drilling came so much from... Men don't wear hats when they pray as much as we don't wear hats inside buildings. There was more of a formality of decorum, we might say. What? Respect? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So uh, let me me ask this question because this text, it probably gets, it, it has much more to do with men and women in worship than necessarily the head coverings. Because we've already seen in some pictures, there's a lot of variety in what head coverings would look like. Um, and So men and women in worship together. So I want you to think back, and some of you that are a little bit more experienced, we might say, are probably going to have a whole lot more to offer at this point in the conversation. Um, so what historically would the church have looked like, as you think about men and women in worship, not just this church, but yeah, I'm sure there might be other congregations that you're familiar with or expressions. Generva. Okay. All right. Now, was that like, did, did mom tell you that? Or I read Amish. you read Amish books. There we go. There we go. Very good. Men on, on one side, women on the other. Okay. Men in front, women in behind. Okay. Other thoughts that, just historically, men and win, men and women in worship together. What comes to mind? Okay. 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 Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so there's been different ways historically those things have looked. When I did an internship at the uh, a church about 25 minutes south of where we lived in Indiana... Um, we drove past an old-order German Baptist church every time we took the road down there. And there was um, outdoor bathrooms. There was no indoor, no running, plumbing, any of those things. Um, and I believe there were different doors. A door for men and a door for women. And it was just, it was just a, a way that that was, was expressed there in the temple, so let's think Jerusalem temple, let's think Herod's temple, the temple Jesus would have visited when he was on the earth, um, there was a court for the women, and there was a place where the women were allowed to be, but that also implies that there was a place where the women weren't allowed to be, and there was, there was a spot where you could go no further, and the court of the women was a little closer than the court of the Gentiles. And so if you were a part of a if you were a Gentile and not a Jew, you would not come as close as the women would have come. But then there was the court of the women. And part of what Paul tells us in Ephesians, and it shows up a little bit in Colossians, and I think it shows up in Galatians as well, is that Christ has has broken down some of these barriers. Barriers that had very physical signs of representation where in the book of Ephesians, he he took down the dividing wall of hostility. That would have been a reference to this little probably three-foot wall that would have separated the Gentiles from the Jews at the temple. And, And so we then have scriptures that tell us, you know, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no barbarian or Scythian, there's no male or female in christ that there's there's not a second class level of salvation depending on what ethnicity you are or what gender you have because of what christ has done and in christ all have been brought near as we get into our text i want to tell you that i i find it fascinating that paul doesn't address head coverings outside the church he never addresses them in the public square and it's not that he didn't care about what happened in the public square because last week he specifically talked about what you should do in the marketplace so he had he had a few things to say about when you go to martin's and buy your groceries this is what your behavior looks like if you have questions When you go to the home of an unbeliever, this is what your behavior looks like. But here, in regards to head coverings, he never addresses what was happening outside the walls of the gathering. Now, I'm inferring, and that is always really, really dangerous. But part of me wonders if the women and his need to address these things was actually only an issue inside the church. And not outside. And here's, here's why I wonder that. Several times along the way Paul has, well two times along the way Paul has quoted the Corinthians to say, All things are lawful for me but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me but I will not be enslaved by any of them. Only the things that build up was in the text last week, there seems to have been an attitude within the Corinthians that we, we can kind of do whatever we want. And if you just kind of have that in mind as you read through his letter, that's really how they were acting. And so again, I wonder, I speculate, which is always really dangerous to do, but I wonder if the reason why he doesn't address head coverings outside the church is because The cultural understanding of what it looked like to be a married woman in first century Corinth was not something they were trying to buck against. But when they got inside the church, it was kind of this wild and free, all things are lawful for me, let's throw off restraint. And I think as we unpack some of actually what a head covering would have signified, it gets a little traction I asked a a friend of of ours to um, send me a picture of a Middle Eastern head covering and when I have opportunities to do that I like to not go to Google and find any old picture I'd like to find the people I know who have either traveled over there or lived over there or served over there because there's a whole lot more credibility in my opinion to being able to say, hey, I know at least one of the people on that picture. And here's probably what uh, a Middle Eastern head covering would have looked like. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a Middle Eastern context. It would, not, it would have been not terribly far from Greece. Uh, so it's not akin to the Amish prayer bonnet or the Mennonite prayer cap, the, the doily that had been thrown out. It's quite actually very different than the Baptist Gospel Church with a really awesome choir example we threw up there as well. Uh, but this was probably what would have been close, similar. So I began asking this friend of ours who is pictured, uncovered, um, just about some of the cultural customs that she experienced. I said, well, when, when do girls begin to get covered? And generally speaking, it's when they hit puberty would be when they would begin to start covering. It's interesting, my my parents, we're going to be out there on Wednesday, um, they have a, a lot of neighbors who are culturally Middle Eastern. And as their little girls get older, and some of them that are about Allegra's age, are starting to have covers. And we, last year when we were out there, the girls played kickball with one of the little neighbor girls who was fully covered, and yet the younger sisters weren't. And so there's something in regards culturally to the, 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 the the aging through puberty and then the ability of or the preparing for marriage, but then also then certainly what a head covering would symbolize and signify regarding a married woman. So let me ask you this question. What have you... Learned, felt, observed in churches about the role of women. This is a dangerous question. But What have you experienced? What have you learned? What have you felt? It varies, okay. Okay. All right. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yep, yep, some denominations would. Part of the variety, David's probably mentioning, yep. And I just tell you, I I think the American church for a long time has had a lot of patriarchy, and it's been male-dominated. I'll go as far to say sinfully dominated. We can trace that back to the fall, where men are going to be inclined to sinfully dominate women. We're gonna, you can tra- we're gonna we don't have time this morning to trace all these things back that far, but I think you could. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what denomination it is, but there's a church that meets on Main Street. They have a storefront and it's it's bishop or elder so and so and first lady. And Yeah, Carrie's not first lady. She doesn't want to be. I don't want her to be. That's not a pedestal we're going to set her up on. All right. She's Carrie. Brenda Yeah. Okay. There's a church in our fellowship that has done that. Mikey. Yeah. Here's the thing. If we approach this text thinking inequality in male dominance... I think we completely miss what Paul is going to instruct the Corinth church about and in turn instruct us about. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that this passage has been used to oppress the value of women along the way and elevate the value of men. But I don't think that's at all what Paul's doing. So I want to try to unpack for you in the time we have remaining what he's doing because I think it's important. And I think it actually matters a lot for us today in 2019. So I've got a fun Venn diagram for you. Here's what I think he's doing in the text, okay? He is saying yes to equality. He is saying yes to distinction. And I'm there at... If I added the word gender in there, it would have popped the text out of the little circle. So, it is yes to gender distinction, but no to distraction. I think that's what's happening in the text. Yes, men and women are equal. Yes, men and women are distinct. No, we should not distract one another think that's what's happening in the text this text comes on the heels of Paul saying and commanding in the last verse of chapter 10 whatever you do do all for the glory of God whether you eat or drink do all for the glory of God and there appears to have been then some type of distraction that was entering into the church That was taking the focus away from the glory of God. And Paul's explanation as to why they should do what they do doesn't make a ton of sense to us. But you got to think it made perfect sense to them. And So we're going to try to trace through here some of the ways that I think these three things are happening in the text. And so as the text breaks down, here's what I think we're going to. To see. So let's go to the text. Let's read it. And then we'll begin breaking it down. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head un or with his head covered dishonors his head but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven for if a wife will not cover her head then she should cut her hair short but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head let her cover her head For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. It's a tricky passage. But here's how I think it breaks down. I think in verse 3, after Paul is finished commending them, he emphasizes that there is equality in value despite distinction and role. So men and women are equal in value, but they're distinct in role or rank. And that's what the word head means. It means role or rank. It has the idea of a priority to it. But just in the way that the Apostle Paul lays out the very people he writes of in chapter, or verse 3 of chapter 11, he's not trying to establish a hard and fast pecking order of priority. And so he doesn't begin with women at the bottom heading to men and then Christ and then God. He begins actually with the man. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is part of where the idea of submission will come in to the text and you have that much more clearly outlined in Ephesians 5, where the command, wives submit to your husband as unto the Lord. But here I think the idea is that there is equal value, but yet there's distinction in role or rank. And so if you just think about the idea of just submitting to the head, let's add that word in and let's think about the quality or character of the first and the third relationships. The first is this, the head of every man is Christ. Let's think about the character of Christ expressing unconditional love for those he came to die for. Expressing unconditional love. that's, That's then how... Husbands are to love their wives, from Ephesians 5. So, is a man to submit to Christ? Yes, but he submits to the unconditional love of Christ. Let's go to the third as well. You're going to see the same thing trace through, I believe. The head of Christ is God, the Father. There's equal value in the Trinity. Every one of them equally God, yet distinct in personhood. Distinct in role and rank. The Father sent the Son. The Son obeys the Father. But the Father unconditionally loves the Son. And in John 3 verse 35, Jesus says as much. And so the Son submits to the unconditional love and plans of the Father. And did so in the garden. If it's your will, let this cup pass from me nevertheless not my will but your will be done and I think in turn does the Bible speak to the idea of submission of wives to their husbands yes but it is to the unconditional love of their husbands a love that reflects Christ a love that in no way diminishes the equality of value that there is while upholding a distinct that God has created a distinctness in role. And so, in verse 3, as he walks through some of these relationships, I think he's expressing there is equality in value, yet there's distinction in role. In verses 4 to 6, we actually see equality in ministry, but distinction in what I would say cultural identification. And that's where I think the idea of no distraction comes in to mind. Let's go to verse 4. Even or every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. That might be where we got No Hats in Church from. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Okay, let's skip the honoring, dishonoring for a moment. And just... Just note, Paul talks about men and women doing the exact same thing in the gathering. If a man prays or prophesies, if a woman prays or prophesies, he speaks to an equality of ministry role there. Both are praying and prophesying. And that phrase is going to become really helpful when we get to chapter 14 when Paul says women must be silent in church. Because we're going to have to unpack that, like we're going to get there. But here, the instructions he gives is not for women to not pray or prophesy, but to do it in a way that doesn't cause a distraction. To do it in a way that culturally identifies This distinction of gender that God has created. I'll tip my hand a little bit to where I think we're going. I think this text actually has a ton to do with modesty. If we put a 2019 word on it, modesty. That's where we're going to see his argument go in verses 6 and 7 as he continues Because the head covering in the Middle East was a symbol of marriage. And so for those that were entering puberty and becoming of age and growing into that time when they would be eligible for marriage, it was a way of identifying purity and modesty. And for those women that were married, it's a way of identifying fidelity and chastity and modesty as married women. But there's different ways, different cultures express that. There are tribes in Africa where women do not wear tops. We would consider that immodest. From what I understand, I've never visited them, read about it in a book. That's just life. And I've actually read of missionary accounts where missionaries actually hurt the tribal life. American missionaries did. Because they came and they brought American modesty rules. And all of a sudden, the men were thinking things they weren't thinking before. Because up until that point, that's just how babies ate. And it was easier for them to... Be available and ready for babies to eat. But when the missionaries came and said, "Oh, we've gotta, gotta put a top on," the men actually started thinking of things that they hadn't been thinking before, and it caused actually a whole lot of problems. you got an American understanding of cultural modesty being pushed onto an African understanding of cultural modesty, and in that sense, it became a distraction for them where it hadn't been before. I remember talking with my buddy, Corey, who went and did some time abroad in Africa for one of his college courses. And he said, I, I kind of had to look the other way and just kind of know it was what they did. Because it just was what they did, but it wasn't what he did. But there's equality in ministry, yet distinction in cultural identification. See, in our society, there, there certainly are areas of the body that need to be covered culturally. And it's going to be distinguished from different tribes in Africa. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. One's got it figured out and one doesn't. I'm just saying that as it relates to culture... There are American rules, if you will, of what modesty looks like. And I think that's what Paul has in mind as he's speaking about head coverings, which would have been a first century cultural identification for modesty. As I began doing the the more deep research into this this past week, there was a moment on Tuesday where I was like, oh, good grief. I really wish the kids wouldn't be in there because I could talk a little bit more freely. But I learned that, like, hair was considered very immodest if uncovered in this society. We don't consider hair to be immodest if uncovered. But they did. And so, for a man to take the cultural. Identifications of what, a, of what the distinctions of femininity are would dishonor his head, Christ. Because he is not upholding the cultural distinctions of what masculinity looked like. And the same was true for women. For them to abandon the cultural distinctions of femininity which included modesty, would dishonor her head. And that's where Paul goes next, since it is if her head were shaven. They shaved the heads of women who were caught in adultery. That's what's going on there. If you were caught in adultery, you lost your hair, And that became the cultural identification that you were immodest, that you were unchaste. And in verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, will not be modest in her dress, then she should just cut her hair short. In some ways, it's as if Paul is saying, look, look, you might as well just go the whole way. If you're going to go so far, just go the whole way. If you're going to be immodest in this regard, then you might as well just be fully and completely immodest. One commentator pointed this out, that although to modern women of Western countries, this Middle Eastern custom of veiling, and that's probably a better word for us, actually. Veiling women seems to signify social inequality and even inferiority. However, in the East, it's a symbol of honor and of sanctity and of privacy of their family life. We're having conversations to that regard in our own home. Girls, there's a reason the boys can run around without their shirts on, and you're going to wear a shirt. It's just a cultural way of having modesty. I think that's what's going on in the church. Women who went uncovered, one commentator wrote, were giving nonverbal clues that they might be, quote-unquote, available. And so Paul just says, look, if you're going to go this far, you might as well go the whole way. There's equality in the ministry role expressed. Now, I'm not going to say that equality goes and stretches to absolutely everything because I do believe there is distinction in the office of elder that is given. But here in this text, praying and prophesying, we're going to get into prophesying in the month of August when we break down and start to break down spiritual gifts. Praying and prophesying are two things both men and women are allowed to do as they gather with the body of Christ in the gatherings, worship, service. But they need to do so in ways that uphold the distinctions that they were created with. Some of those distinctions are going to look culturally different here than they do in China than they do in America, than they do in Africa, than they do in the Middle East. In verses 7 to 10, Paul begins to discuss that there's complementary distinction within creation. So he takes his argument all the way back to the garden. These verses do get a little tricky for us. For a man ought, verse 7, to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of of man, I think if we allow the idea of modesty to help inform our understanding and interpretation of those verses, it, it makes a little bit more sense and sounds a little bit more or a little less like masculine dominance. Because I think the idea here, and husbands, I think you're probably able to identify with this. There's a cherishing we have of our wives that is unique to us. That is not to be shared. And that's a good thing. And so in saying that woman is the glory of man. I think that's part and parcel to this idea. That a husband cherishes. Some of the uniquenesses of his wife in a special way. That is not to be shared anywhere else. For man was not made from woman, verse 8, but woman from man. Eve came from Adam's rib. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now that sounds terrible if just on its face. But let's take it back to the garden. Woman was created as a helper fit for him after Adam realized, I'm missing something. All of the animals in the garden got paraded by him. He named them all. There was two of every one of them, a male and a female. And he goes, I, where's mine? And God says, it's not good that man's alone. He doesn't have a helper fit for him. And this is more than just body parts. This stretches far beyond anatomy. There is something... That I am missing that Carrie brings to our relationship that I would be lacking if she didn't have. And together we fulfill this command to be fruitful and multiply, to rule and subdue, to have dominion and reign. As spoken in Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 where God creates them male and female and gives them the charge to be fruitful and multiply. There's complementarity that God created men and women with. You see it in anatomy, but it extends far beyond that. So verse 9 is just a statement back to the garden. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Quite frankly, nobody really has any idea what that phrase, because of the angels, means. I can I can pull out every one of my books and every one of them is like, we don't have a clue, but we're going to take a shot. We don't have time to take a shot, so we're just going to skip it, okay? Nevertheless, in the Lord, here's where you see some more of the interdependence that's going to come. Woman is not independent of man. Okay, so if left on its own, that still can feel like some masculine dominance, if you will. And I wish the English translation would have put this in. But you see the word of between the word man and woman? Independent of man nor man of woman. You see that in your text? It's the same word independent that shows up earlier. So let me just read it as if it was there. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man and man is not independent of woman. That's what he wrote. We lose it a little bit in our English translations. There's an interdependency and an interdependent equality that is expressed. So, man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Without men, women, you're not getting pregnant. Without women, men, you're not having babies. Having children, I mean, it's just basic biology. That's Paul's point. There's distinction in the role. There's distinction in the function. But there is equality in the interdependency. And there is an interdependent, interdependent equality with one another. And so in verses 13 to 16, he just tries to begin to apply this. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Again, if, they, we, if we allow that to be immodestly, I think it begins to make a little bit more sense, help us a little bit more culturally unpack that. Is it right or proper for a woman to pray immodestly or dressed immodestly? I think the argument there is no. She would be a distraction she would not be protecting some of the God-given femininity that he created her with, that is to be cherished and not shared with anyone else other than one's husband. And he kind of proves his point in ways that, again, are, are just tough for us to unpack, but does not nature teach itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. I'm not really sure what to do with that. Because like there'd have to be haircuts involved. I do think it's kind of funny that every picture we have of Jesus, he has long feathered hair. But here we're, we're being told that that was a disgrace for first century men. Jesus probably had short hair. But the idea is, is that there is distinction And I think these verses towards the end are essentially saying, look, does not nature teach you that there's distinction between genders? So guys shouldn't dress like girls. Girls shouldn't dress like guys. Uphold the distinctions. Don't let there be distractions. But there's equality in value. Yet, distinction in role or rank. There's equality in even the ministry role of praying and prophesying. But yet, there should be distinction in cultural identifications that I would say would be, there shouldn't be distractions of immodesty. With husbands and wives, there's complementary distinction within creation. And there's an interdependent equality with one another. I'll say one more thing, and I missed it as we were going. It's in verse 3 because it it, it mirrors back to what Paul says in Ephesians 5, where in Ephesians 5, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. That idea is expressed once again. The head of a wife is her husband. I just want to say this because I think it's, it's, it, it bears saying in today's culture and society, because we get it wrong all the time. Women are not subject to men because they're women. The scriptures say that a wife is called to submit to two groups. One is her husband. The second is to a group called elders. Elders. But that second group, every single person in the church is called to submit to. Women are not subject to men because they are women. That is a demonic twisting of what God has created. And we should do everything we can as men to say that as loudly as we can and live that out as passionately as we can because women are not second-class citizens because they are women they are equal there is distinction they are equal and it is own husband and that gets repeated time and time again damien stole my joke at the beginning of the service I was going to tell you, we were going to sing my favorite song about head coverings. And he took it from me. He didn't even know he took it from me, but he took it from me. We are going to sing about Jesus. Because as we think about what he's done, as we think about who he is, that's where some of these things find some clarity. Let's pray. They'll come up and lead us. Jesus, we thank you for what it is that you've done. We thank it is for, thank you for who it is that you are, and we do pray that you would help us to live in such a way, to interact in such a way, to love in such a way that we would, that we would celebrate the equality that you have made men and women with, that we would celebrate the uniquenesses that you have made us with. And God, we pray that you'd help us to do that in ways that are faithful, in ways that are loving, in ways that build up the church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.